Jay with Pot Stirrer Podcast. With everything going on in our world right now, I wanted to go in a slightly different direction with the podcast for the time being. To be honest, it takes a lot out of me to spend hours researching updates on the current situation we have right now in the U.S. and worldwide. And I'm sure many of you would like a short mental break from it too. Because of that, I'm going to begin a multi-episode series on U.S. Middle East politics. This was something I planned on covering later this year, but I decided to move it up in light of recent events. I'll intersperse current event episodes in between when I feel I need to touch on something, but at least for the next couple of episodes, perhaps more, we're going to move in a slightly different direction. There are entire courses and major concentrations in colleges and universities that focus on Middle East politics, so it's important that the series have a somewhat narrow focus. But even with that, it's going to need some planning. So the first episode of the U.S. Middle East Politics series, not yet titled by the way, I'm looking to have that out next week. But this week, I'm not going to leave you hanging. Last week, I posted a vote on Facebook and Twitter as to which bonus episode you wanted released this week. And the people have spoken. Thank you for participating in the vote. And if you didn't get a chance to vote, be sure to follow the show on Twitter at PotstirrerCast and like the Potstirrer Podcast Facebook page so you'll be a part of the conversation and you'll be able to participate in upcoming polls. The cool thing is that this episode voted on is a great lead-in to the upcoming series. This week will be the public release of the September 2019 Patreon bonus episode, End Times MacGuffins, where I discuss why evangelical Christians tend to support the state of Israel when it comes to foreign policy. Enjoy! As both someone who is simply interested in sociological trends and phenomena, and as a black woman in America, I tend to think a lot about the in-group, out-group dynamics of religious, racial, and sexual minority groups in the U.S. There is a diversity of thought in every group. Not every black, Latino, or Jewish person supports Democrats or embraces progressive or liberal values. While it might be easy for many of us to see which parties or politicians are more willing to support or oppose their group rights, there is room for people to think and believe differently as to the best way that government can lend support to their group. Or, some people may have other priorities they also feel the need to consider besides the interests of their group. After all, there is more to our individual identities than our race, ethnicity, or religion, and intersectionality the holding of multiple identities, and how these identities intersect and come into play. Intersectionality is a thing. Yet in some cases, when someone does the bidding of their oppressors and becomes influential because of it, this can be extremely dangerous. The danger is that the oppressor class may use that person's view to justify silencing the voices of the marginalized group as a whole. Oh, so-and-so is of your group and they agree with me. There are differences of opinion, and there are those whose advocacy clearly leads to the continued oppression or destruction of their own people. Where is the line drawn between diversity of opinion and doing the oppressor's bidding? This can be a tough question to answer, but regardless of how we decide where that line is drawn, 
What should not be in question is who should draw those lines. Those who are part of that community and have a collective stake in the outcome should be drawing those lines. Not a white supremacist megalomaniac who believes he is the second coming of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Jay Poole, and this is Potstirer Podcast. In this month's Patreon bonus episode, I want to discuss Donald Trump's recent comments regarding the loyalty of Jewish Democrats who don't support him. On August 20th, the president said this. Where has the Democratic Party gone? Where have they gone where they're defending these two people over the state of Israel? And I think any Jewish people that vote for a Democrat, uh, I think it shows either a total lack of knowledge or great disloyalty. He later doubled down on these comments, stating this. In my opinion, the Democrats have gone very far away from Israel. I, I cannot understand how they can do that. They don't want to fund Israel. They want to take away foreign aid to Israel. They want to do a lot of bad things to Israel. In my opinion, you vote for a Democrat, you're being very disloyal to Jewish people, and you're being very disloyal to Israel. And only weak people would say anything other than that. According to the BBC, about 75% of Jewish Americans identify as Democrats. In the 2016 presidential election, 71% of Jewish voters supported Hillary Clinton, and only 24% supported Donald Trump. Representatives Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, and Ayanna Presley, known as The Squad, were the group of four congresswomen Trump was referencing in his statements. These progressive congresswomen, particularly Omar and Tlaib, have been critical of Israel's government headed by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, particularly their oppressive policies towards Palestinians living in territories along Israel's border, as well as moves by the Netanyahu government targeting ethnic minorities within Israel. Reps Omar and Tlaib have also been critical of the American-Israel Public Affairs Committee, or APAC, the top pro-Israel lobby in the United States that has been behind laws in the U.S. barring corporations from boycotting Israel. These criticisms by Omar and Tlaib, who both happen to be Muslim, have been framed by not only Trump, but by politicians from both major parties as both anti-Israel and anti-Jewish. Omar was slammed by both Republicans and Democrats, as well as Jewish advocacy groups, earlier this year for criticizing congressional representatives' ties to APAC, and in particular, she was called out for invoking the same trope of disloyalty that Trump used. Ah, the irony. And due to Omar and Tlaib's criticisms, as well as pressure from Trump, they were barred from a congressional visit to Israel. Tlaib, who is of Palestinian descent with relatives in the region, was later granted access to visit family, but has declined to join the trip. According to the Washington Post, representatives of a number of Jewish advocacy groups, such as the American Jewish Committee, J Street, and the Anti-Defamation League, as well as politicians such as Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, spoke out against Trump's statements, 
particularly in regards to what he termed disloyalty of Jewish voters. David Harris, chief executive of the American Jewish Committee, said this regarding Trump, quote, American Jews, like all Americans, have a range of political views and policy preferences. His assessment of their knowledge or loyalty based on their party preference is inappropriate, unwelcome, and downright dangerous, end quote. Logan Baroff, spokesman for J Street, said, quote, it is dangerous and shameful for President Trump to attack the large majority of the American Jewish community as unintelligent and disloyal. But it is no surprise that the president's racist, disingenuous attacks on progressive women of color in Congress have now transitioned into smears against Jews, end quote. Jonathan Greenblatt, CEO of the Anti-Defamation League, was interviewed on CNN and had this to say about Trump's statement. While it's a bit unclear what the president was trying to say in terms of who Jews are disloyal to, are we disloyal to him or the Republican Party or to America? While he wasn't exactly clear about that, I will be exactly clear on what that was, anti-Semitism. The charge of disloyalty or dual loyalty has been used against Jews for thousands of years. In Europe it was used for 1,500 years to say that Jews were not sufficiently loyal to the church or the crown. And so it, they justified persecuting, mm -hmm. marginalizing, and murdering Jews in the countries where they lived. And over the last hundred years in the Middle East, they would say that Jews were more loyal to Israel than the countries where they lived. And they would use that as justification to persecute, marginalize, and murder these people where they lived. So today in this country, when we're seeing a rise of white supremacy, when we're seeing a rash of anti-Semitic attacks, mm. look, it's almost two years to the day of the Charlottesville march. It's, we're getting on the year anniversary of the Pittsburgh massacre, the most violent anti-Semitic act in American history. It is bewildering that we even have to have this conversation and that these words are coming out of the Oval Office. It is extraordinary and almost inexplicable that our commander-in-chief would use his Twitter feed to go after Hollywood celebrities and other random individuals but can't seem to call out the racist, xenophobic, anti-Semitic, white supremacist movement that is indeed growing. I mean, we see this. White nationalism is a global terror threat, and we need our commander-in-chief to call it out. But I will tell you this, Jim. It is, I've said this before. It is long past due for politicians to stop tokenizing Jews. Mm. We are not political props to be used for partisan mm. gain, whether by the president or members of his cabinet, or I'll be honest with you, members of Congress shouldn't talk to us about where we have our allegiances. We are Americans, first and foremost. And we need to yeah. be recognized for that and treated like everybody else. In an editorial analysis by Paul Danahar of the BBC, he said this regarding Trump's remarks, quote, President Trump is not a man who is careful with his words. He has often seemed to consider exaggerations, untruths, and insults to simply be part of the rough and tumble of American politics. But words matter for the Jewish community because words have been used throughout history as a means to slaughter them by the millions. So when President Trump casually threw out what appeared to be an anti-Semitic trope about 
dual loyalty during his free-willing press conference in the Oval Office. Jews had reason to be alarmed. In the present climate, with a resurgence of white supremacists and neo-Nazis, the president, seeming to question where their loyalty lay, will be truly frightening for the Jewish community. It re-injects a racist fringe group conspiracy into the body politic. The allegation makes no sense on many levels, but also because many Jews have found their political home in the Democratic Party because, in its modern form, it has been a party that sought to protect minority groups. Many American Jews, just like many American Christians, are very supportive of the State of Israel, even if they are often sharply critical of the Israeli government. However, it is only Jews that are quizzed about what that support says about their loyalty to the U.S. With white nationalists across the world often writing political manifestos before they commit mass murder against minorities, the old World War II adage that careless words cost lives seems increasingly relevant today for anyone who holds public office, end quote. What many of these critics are alluding to and shedding a light on is that Donald Trump is using what is called an anti-Semitic canard. Anti-Semitic canards are unfounded rumors, myths, or false allegations designed to denigrate and justify bigotry against the Jewish religion or Jewish people. Blood libel, Jewish control of the media and the global economy, and Holocaust denial are examples of anti-Semitic canards, but this is definitely not an exhaustive list. The disloyalty myth, like blood libel, is one of the oldest of these bigoted tropes. Anti-Semitic canards have been going on since at least the birth of Christianity, but really gained traction during the Middle Ages. And these anti-Semitic canards had real-world effects on Jewish communities around the world. This led to Jews being persecuted and expelled from England in the late 13th century and France throughout the 14th century. It also led to them experiencing widespread segregation, discrimination, and violence all over Europe in the Middle East during and after the Middle Ages. Jewish communities were also massacred by the Moors in Spain in 1066 Granada Massacre and in Morocco throughout the first part of the second millennium. Russian pogroms, or anti-Semitic riots targeting Jews in Jewish ghettos, were widespread in the 1800s and early 1900s. Of course, there was the Holocaust executed by the Nazis and a run-up to the Holocaust that took several years, with increasing persecution against the Jews, as well as other groups. And as that run-up was happening, other countries, including the United States, limited Jewish immigration. In the U.S., pressure from anti-Semitic politicians and business leaders led to the U.S. limiting European Jewish entry into the country. Notable figures such as Henry Ford and Charles Lindbergh, who happened to be friends, were documented anti-Semites. So when we talk about Trump, who has a great deal of reach and is the face of the United States, using an anti-Semitic canard to blast Jewish Democrats, there is reason to be alarmed. It doesn't help that despite Trump's son-in-law, Jared Kushner, being Jewish and his daughter, Ivanka Trump, having converted to Judaism, Trump has enjoyed the support of white nationalists and has been unwilling to unequivocally condemn white nationalists when they have committed acts of terror, such as the Charlottesville terror attack in 2017 and the El Paso terror attack 
in early August of this year. And while Trump's senior advisor, Stephen Miller, is also Jewish, Miller has had long-standing ties to the alt-right and was a supporter of neo-Nazi white nationalist Richard Spencer going back to their time as students at Duke University. Trump is spreading the myth that Jewish Americans have, or should have, dual loyalty, that they are and should be bound to the politics of the state of Israel. It is not my place to say whether or not U.S. foreign policy towards Israel should be a deciding factor as to how Jewish people vote. That's not my place. It is also not Trump's place. But I will say that it's dangerous to separate out a specific group of people as disloyal because it's not far of a jog to get from disloyal to enemies of the state, right for discrimination, separation, and eventually much, much worse. It's happened before, and there's nothing at this point stopping it from happening again. That said, I would suggest that when Trump made his comments about Jewish Democratic voters, he wasn't talking to Jewish Democrats, or even Jewish Americans more generally. Donald Trump was talking to his base, particularly white evangelical Christians. White evangelicals tend to have positive views of Israel, and particularly Israel as the home of the Jewish people. In a 2013 survey by the Pew Research Center, 82% of American white evangelicals believe Israel was given to the Jewish people by God, on par with Orthodox Jews, a more traditional group within Judaism, and twice as high as Jewish Americans, generally. White evangelicals are also more likely than Jews to favor stronger U.S. support of Israel and are less likely than Jews to believe that a peaceful two-state solution between Israelis and Palestinians can be achieved. Among white evangelicals, there are a couple reasons why there is such strong support for Israel. One reason is because of the Bible, particularly a verse that many evangelicals interpret as applying to countries and their stance towards Israel. The Lord has said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Genesis 12 one through three. To give context to this Bible passage, this is God's covenant with Abram, who would later be renamed Abraham, the father of the three major monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. Everything that happens in the Bible after this point is tied back to this, God's covenant with Abraham and his descendants. This passage is often interpreted by evangelical leaders to refer to the loyalty of individuals and especially countries, to the state of Israel, including the modern state of Israel established in 1948. And that gets into another reason why so many white evangelicals unquestioningly support Israel. That establishment of modern Israel is viewed by some evangelicals as fulfillment of prophecy and an event that got the ball rolling towards the second coming of Christ and. Armageddon. When I was 
about 10 or 11 years old. I was staying up late one night. My parents had gone to bed and I decided to turn on the TV, just low enough to hear and watch the Omen trilogy, the movies from 1976, 1978, and 1981. I don't acknowledge Omen 4 and 5 or the 2006 remake. The Omen, if you aren't familiar, is a horror film about an orphaned baby named Damien who ends up being the Antichrist. The rest of the trilogy follows Damien throughout his life. The second movie is about him as a teenager, and then the third focuses on Damien as a very powerful adult. Damien seems like any other person, a rich person, but any other person. But people die violently around him because he supernaturally wills it. And the only way anyone knows he is the Antichrist is a birthmark on his scalp with the number 666. I was super sucked in. Then, right before the credits of the first movie, there was a Bible verse. This calls for wisdom. Let the person who has insight calculate the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man. That number is 666. Revelation 13, 18. So you know I just had to look this up. I thought to myself, is this for real? So I found my dad's Bible, turned on the lights, and looked up the verse. It was there. Oh shit, there really is an Antichrist. I stayed up to watch the other Omen movies, and then the next day I read the book of Revelation. It was the first time I ever bothered to read the Bible on my own outside of church and religion class in school. While the Omen movies are by no means Christian movies, the ideas behind them are based on theories in a field of study called Christian eschatology. Christian eschatology, also known as end times theology, is the study of the end, including the end of life, the end of the world as we know it, and the kingdom of God. In general, many Christians, including evangelicals, believe in Jesus Christ's return in some form to finish fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah or Savior to defeat sin once and for all and establish his kingdom on earth. In the New Testament, in Matthew 24, Jesus describes his return. There are many theories as to what the second coming and end of the world may look like. I'm going to touch on one of the most relevant to this discussion. So to give you some background, there are different views Christian clergy and scholars take regarding the second coming. Super briefly, here are the overall schools of thought regarding Jesus' return. Premillennialism is the belief that Jesus will literally come back to earth before the millennium and reign for a thousand years of peace. In this context, the millennium refers to a thousand-year reign, not a specific day or time period on the calendar. Postmillennialism is the belief that the millennium, the thousand years of peace, will happen before Jesus comes back. Then there is amillennialism. Amillennialists don't believe that the millennium is literal. They see the term as symbolic and not a defined period of a thousand years, just a way to express that Christ is currently reigning from heaven and will do so for a long time during the age of the church. Once the church falls, Jesus will come back for the final judgment of humanity and a permanent reign in both heaven and on earth. All these schools of thought have in common that those who accept Jesus Christ will ultimately be saved from eternal suffering in hell with Satan 
and will ultimately live forever in heaven with God. Within the premillennialist school, those who think Jesus will come back to reign for a thousand years of peace, there is a sub-theory that is super popular among American evangelicals called dispensationalism. Dispensationalism has been around almost as long as the church has been around, and it has had many contributors, but John Nelson Darby, one of the founders of the Plymouth Brethren, an evangelical movement originating in Ireland, is credited with being the father of dispensationalism, having expanded on it and popularized it in the 1830s. Dispensationalism started out as a way for Christians to make sense of contradictions throughout the Bible, particularly salvation through the law as handed down to Moses in the Old Testament book of Exodus, the law itself being in Leviticus, and salvation through faith in Christ and the grace of God. A dispensation is an age or period of time where God relates to humanity using distinct principles, whether it is as an authoritarian father, or God being full of wrath, or God having grace. Each dispensation is meant to build on itself, not cancel each other out. Now, if that part sounds confusing, well, remember that this is their way of maintaining that the Bible is the literal word of God and dealing with the contradictions within it. I didn't say it was a good way of doing it. Dispensationalists believe that there will be an age of tribulation or judgment, then the second coming of Christ, then the thousand-year reign of grace. Here's where we get into the Jewish people. In dispensationalism, there is a distinction between Israel and the Christian church. When dispensationalists talk about Israel, it's not simply the country that began in 1948. They're referring to the Jewish people, and they're referring to their Jewishness in ethnic terms. They view the Jewish people as an ethnic group that are direct descendants of Abraham. The Christian church consists of all people deemed saved or born again from the book of Acts in the New Testament through the present day up until the end times. There is some disagreement as to if someone can be both part of the Jewish people and part of the Christian church such as Jesus' apostles, who were Jews that became followers of Christ, or today, someone who is ethnically Jewish but decides to convert to Christianity. But overall, they see ethnic Jews and Christians as distinct groups with different destinies. Dispensationalists believe that the Jews are God's earthly chosen people but remain in rejection of Jesus Christ. So when Christ returns before the thousand-year reign, a small group or a remnant among the Jewish people, usually quoted at 144,000 Jews, will accept Jesus Christ as their true Messiah and will repent of having crucified Christ during the first coming. Which, that last part embraces an anti-Semitic trope known as Jewish deicide, or the Christ-killer myth. The Jewish deicide trope has been responsible for untold horrors perpetrated against the Jewish people, So it's pretty abhorrent that this would be embraced as part of a belief system that so many American evangelicals embrace, though I'm not sure how many are aware of that part of it. I wasn't aware of it myself until somewhat recently. Dispensationalists believe that for these events to be set in motion, the Jewish diaspora would have to return to Israel, and in particular, Jerusalem. The creation of the State of Israel in 1948 
was seen by many dispensationalists as kickstarting a new age or dispensation that is heading toward the second coming, the thousand-year reign, and the end times. Those dispensationalists that see the creation of the state of Israel as the kickoff are called Christian Zionists. Some evangelical ministries have set up missions in the state of Israel for the sake of getting Israeli Jews to convert to Christianity and attempting to usher in the second coming of Christ. Dispensationalism was not developed in the U.S., but it is popular among many white evangelicals here, as some of the most popular expressions of evangelical Christianity, such as independent Baptists, Pentecostals, and non-denominational evangelical churches, tend to embrace dispensationalism. The larger evangelical denominations, such as the Southern Baptist Convention and the Assemblies of God, don't take a firm stance on it, but dispensationalism has a strong presence within those denominations, as well as other evangelical denominations. This view of the end of days has governed not only evangelical views on Israel, but also other issues such as global warming and climate change. Dispensationalism has also gained traction over the last few decades due to many televangelists, including the late Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson, and John Hagee, promoting this view of the end times and forging ties with the Israeli government. There was also a popular book series written in the 1990s and 2000s by the late Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins called Left Behind, which is a fictionalized account of the rapture an event embraced by many evangelical Christians that when the end times are set in motion, faithful Christians will be taken up to heaven while others will remain on earth. The books are based on a dispensationalist worldview and reflect a very conservative evangelical take on the end of days. The books were popular during their run with evangelical Christians, and they were adapted into a number of really crappy movies helping to bring about the second act of now super-evangelical Kirk Cameron. For evangelical leaders who are also dispensationalists, which many are, support for Israel is sold not only as to what the U.S. must do to stay in God's good graces as a country. Support for Israel is also framed as a way for the U.S. to help bring about the second coming of Christ and the end of the world. So for many white evangelicals who support Israel, their support is not out of a belief in acceptance and tolerance, but that Jewish people serve as end times MacGuffins, a tool to usher in the second coming of Christ. And after that, other than the 144,000 Jews who become Christians, Jews cease to be useful to them, God dealing with them separately than the elect, the Christians. And yeah, that's fucked up. This is why it's easy for many white evangelicals to steadfastly support the state of Israel, while embracing a president that has tacitly given cover to anti-Semitic movements in the United States, and feels it is his place to dictate the loyalty or the intelligence of Americans who are Jewish. Many see a contradiction, but for them, is all according to God's plan. Thank you for listening to Pastor Podcast. If you like what you heard, subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. Also, if you enjoyed it, please give us five stars and leave a review. And tell your friends as well. Go to pastorpodcast.com for new episodes, merch, and more. And I love to tweet. So follow me at 
Pop Hot Stir cast. I'm Jay Poole. Let's fight for America's future because freedom is not free.